Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode, the second instalment of Rated R for Reviewed. My name is Edward James Beasley and you may notice a couple of changes this week. Firstly, that there is now a title for the podcast and that we've incorporated a little title music into the production. While the former was a creative decision made with feedback, the latter's introduction was down to me for getting to put it in last week's mix. So, for those of you tuning in for the first time, here's what you can expect from the show. I'll be taking a look at two to three new and current film releases, either in cinemas now or recently added to streaming services. Then I'll be turning my sights to the trailers currently showing and a little feedback on the promise of those. We'll then have a look back at these once the films are released and see if the trailers lived up to, excelled, fell short or straight up subverted my expectations. Anyway, this week I shall be casting my verdict on two current releases. First up is Andrew Bajalski's comedy drama Support the Girls, starring Regina Hall as the put-upon manager of Double Whammies, a highway-side restaurant, not a term of my own invention before you ask, in the outskirts of Houston. In another genre U-turn, I shall then be looking at the latest Marvel Studios release and first installment since the events of Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home sees the return of Tom Holland as the eponymous Arachno superhero. So, first up is Support the Girls. This is the latest film from Boston-born director Andrew Bajalski, but admittedly I actually haven't seen any of his previous films. I think he's got a number of shorts and um, three or four other feature films, but I've not actually seen any of the previous ones, nor was particularly familiar except maybe with one that I'd seen um, do the rounds on the streaming circuit. The film follows manager Lisa, played by Regina Hall, who's a hard-working boss of a strip mall-located bar and grill named Double Whammies, a self-described sports bar with curves. This is basically just a kind of independent version of Hooters, which is um, pretty much, as you can imagine, uh, that kind of establishment. I guess for anyone who doesn't know what Hooters is, it's fairly young girls who wear incredibly short hot pants and push-up bras and small tops and... A bit of an American um, institution, I think. I, I personally never been in one, but um, I don't know. I think they're one of these things that had uh, have their fans in America. But I guess as uh, a Brit, seem a little bit alien to me. So as mentioned, Lisa is the manager of Double Whammies, and we also get to meet a number of the other employees there. A series of girls, uh, including the uh, incredibly bubbly Macy, played by Haley Lou Richardson, and single mother Danielle, played by Shayna McHale, uh, along with some of the others. It starts off on any kind of weekday morning in which Lisa struggles with a range of fairly mundane problems, including one of her staff turning up with an unwell child and no one to look over him, a cable TV that doesn't want to work, keeping her eye out for a family of rats in the kitchen, interviewing and training up a bunch of new starters... Uh, through to some more outlandish problems, such as coming into work in the morning to find out that there is a man trapped in the air ducts of the bar. At the start of the film, Lisa is also trying to organise a car wash in order to raise some money for one of the other girls, Shayna, who works at the bar. We find out that this money is actually for her legal fees as she's just run over her boyfriend, who is a slightly less than pleasant character. The film opens with a mass of concrete and grey skies as we look out over a mesh of flyovers and cars on the interstate. 
This really could be set in absolutely anywhere in America or even beyond. It's, it's all grey, there's grey skies, there's concrete everywhere and you get the feeling that this could be almost anywhere and there is that kind of element I think of motorways and interstates and strip malls that they kind of lose local character and they end up being absolutely anywhere. And for most of the film, everywhere that we see could be anywhere in America. It's all sort of strip malls, interstates, fairly kind of standard suburban living areas. Although we do get a bit of a hint from the accents and there's a lot of references to Texas on the Lone Star posters, etc. Um, we don't really get a real sense of where this is. It's not really until that we start getting drips of some of the context of the bar, like double whammies, quote-unquote rainbow policy in which Lisa is not allowed to put on more than one African-American or Hispanic girl per shift. Also the kind of Richard Nixon bumper stickers on the back of some of the uh, bar stalls gives us a little bit more of a uh, social context of where we are in the US. The film essentially runs in three acts, of which the first is by far the longest, and we follow Lisa through her struggles of the day, trying to juggle the multiple incidents in the bar, the turning up of the incompetent owner named Cubby, which kind of scuppers her ability to run her um, off-the-books car wash in order to raise money, and also dealing with her personal relationships, which kind of come to the fore, and we have a little bit of the glimpse into her family life, although that's relatively small, it kind of helps to flesh out the character of Lisa and give her a bit more of a kind of a wholeness so that we see a little bit of her outside of the actual bar itself and, and get a sense of everything that she's trying to juggle and everything that she's trying to organise and that she's really this really kind of caring person but also this person who, who just really wants everything to, to run smoothly and run correctly and, and everyone else to be happy and seems to kind of take the weight of everything on her own shoulders. And she's always kind of... Um, has this very, I guess, kind of almost American thing of always kind of showing a brave face. Although we do start the film with her uh, in her car, she's crying. As soon as the other member of staff kind of spots her in the car, um, there's a, an end to that. And she's just, for the most part, seen in this kind of forcing a smile, organising everyone, making sure everyone's all right, making sure the girls are all right, uh, making sure if there's any incidents in the bar that that's dealt with. You can start to see the kind of cracks underneath, but we still see her as an incredibly strong person, even if she's one who's put upon. The first act of the film is also told in real time, so it's really just a case of it being set on one morning of this bar opening. Nothing particularly special about it, except for the new starters and the fact that she comes in to discover that there's a guy trapped in the vents who most definitely shouldn't be there. It also deals with some of the elements of kind of fear of running a business and the difficulties that there are in doing so. We also find out that the owner, Cubby, is having something of a business panic due to the nearby opening of a potentially competitive restaurant named Man Cave. Uh, this is a fictitious supposed national chain of restaurants. And we see that kind of element of that stress being passed down onto poor Lisa, uh, who then, unlike many people in that situation, holds that stress and does not pass it down onto the people below her, even when the people below her have messed up or that they've even been involved in something illegal or try to steal things from the bar itself, that she's still maintaining that level of cool. A lot of the characters are really good fun, uh, and although they may not be incredibly detailed, I think they're there more that we can see how Lisa interacts with them and kind of give this kind of sense of her job and her stresses, and, and not just her stresses, not, it's not just a kind of case of, well, 
this is a place where everything goes wrong. We also see the kind of positive sides uh, and the nice interactions that she has with the girls who work there who really respect her and many of the regulars who really like her. Uh, and it's not a black and white situation for her, although there are many things that are kind of wrong with this job. She takes a lot of pride in it still. And there is a payoff from the other characters, particularly the girls who work there, who really respect her and like her. And we see this kind of friendship and bonding in this way that she's very maternal about them. And I think that creates quite a nice sort of more realistic setting. It's not just a case of this is a day where everything goes wrong. Transience, I think, is very much a big theme of this in this kind of industry girls you know they come and go we start with the new starters coming in and then people kind of leave the bar and it's not seen as being a particularly big deal and the kind of transience of all the people coming in and then going and it, it's there's very much a theme of nothing in this little microcosm lasts for very long but there's a somewhat claustrophobic element about it as well because we never really leave this little microcosm of the area off the I-10 in the in the suburbs of Houston that this film is is set and we never really leave that so it feels quite contained and it's sort of almost these characters can bounce around within this little microcosm and they're always going from place to place but we don't get a sense of them leaving it we don't know what the world is like beyond and the film never really addresses the world beyond which kind of gives it a slightly claustrophobic sense to it it's a strange film in terms of its tone because there are elements of this that are really quite kind of miserable a bit depressing the kind of nature of the establishment itself is from my perspective it presents a lot of awkwardness and this might be because i'm british and not american and we don't have anything really like this in this country definitely not anything that you would just nip off in a motorway service station into so for me it seems intrinsically misogynistic but there is a kind of element of empowerment in this as well although the restaurant is owned by a man there's very much the feeling of Lisa and the girls who were kind of running this show and Lisa, who is about as far removed from a misogynistic man as one can possibly be, that she's somehow running this show that is in its very nature rather misogynistic and masculine. It's interesting to see that that kind of dynamic shift then that Lisa is this manager who has this zero tolerance policy on anyone being disrespectful to any of the girls who are working there and obviously we see that quite early in the film that she's kicking some guy out because he's been disrespectful to one of the girls working there. Lisa is the only person who's actually on the ball enough to to run this mess. People who own things or people who are just punters you, you miss that element of what a really good manager can do and if that really good manager is suddenly not there then the whole thing just falls apart because there's no one there to keep all of these spinning plates going and it does remind me I, I did in, in a former life used to run bars uh, run pub restaurants and um, yeah it kind of brings back some of that uh, elements of stress for me or the kind of all the people kind of coming up to you and going oh by the way I think this is happening oh by the way can you deal with this or I'm not happy about this these kinds of things that it's just constant barrage and I tell you what the character of Lisa in the film does a much much better job of managing these things than I ever did and um, it does not make me long to be back in the service industry I'll be honest. One thing I found about the film because you're kind of juggling the balls of this intrinsically in my opinion sexist misogynistic work environment and an establishment that it's kind of being balanced with all of these nice and, and rounded and, and interesting characters who you just ultimately you like. There's no one in it. I mean, it would have been really easy for some of these characters, especially some of the regulars and some of the, some of the girls working there, for them to become really kind of two-dimensional uh, and super annoying. But actually, they're rounded and they have these wants and needs and they sort of take an element of pride in what they're doing and particularly take an element of respect 
for their manager and their manager respecting them. It's really nice to see these relationships. But on the other hand, I can't get over the fact that the whole thing seems in and of itself rather unpleasant. And maybe that's kind of demeaning from me that I'm just past my judgment on the entire thing. By the end of the film, I think it's a little bit hard to ascertain exactly what the message was, uh, other than good managers are hard to come by and incredibly valuable and should not be treated like crap. And that if people do treat you like rubbish, then, you know, they don't deserve you. There's that kind of element to it. But I'm not quite sure if there's much of a larger social message to the film. We don't we aren't left by the end thinking these kind of establishments are clearly terrible and we've all moved on. It doesn't make those big sweeping judgments really it just focuses more on the characters and their journey rather than saying that the overall uh, institutions themselves are bad so it doesn't perhaps wrap up nice and neatly in that sense i think at the same time i, I still found it very enjoyable it's perhaps slightly uneasy and um, the tone and the message of the film uh, as i said are a little bit unclear but the characters are good and their interactions are good it is funny. I think perhaps you might expect it to be more laugh-out-loud funny consistently, but I'm actually kind of glad that it wasn't. I think it would have lost a lot of its charm, uh, a lot of its humanity, had it gone more for laugh-out-loud funny all the way through. Although, that being said, the audience that I saw the film with, there were definitely a few of them who were laughing quite heartily at different points in the film. So I will say it's very enjoyable. It's had really good reviews. I think it has an overall rating of 85 average on Metacritic out of 100, which is really quite high. I'd definitely say it's worth checking out. I'm not sure you absolutely need to go and see it in the cinema if that's going to add much to uh, watching it whenever it comes out on a streaming service or DVD, etc. But definitely, I think, worth a watch. Regina Hall is definitely somebody who's uh, worth keeping an eye on. It's a really great central performance. It's nice to see a film with a central character of a woman who is strong and determined and incredibly professional, but without her always having to seem like an absolute superhero. She's she's incredibly believable. She's incredibly lovely. She has flaws, and part of her flaw is that she is very nice to everybody and that people can sometimes take advantage of that. But I think overall she's a very grounded character. It's a believable character, and I think that's really what drives the film uh, and makes it as good and enjoyable as it is. So next up is Spider-Man Far From Home. I will say with the MCU, that's a Marvel Cinematic Universe films, they are actually a little bit difficult to review. Um, I don't personally tend to read that many reviews of them because honestly it's not going to impact whether or not I go and see this film uh, and it's not going to impact my enjoyment of it at all. As I previously said, I'm unapologetic for the fact that I absolutely love the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. I love the interconnectedness of all the films and some of the TV series. The characters, the universe, the recurring smaller characters, just everything about it, I really, really enjoy. And I think I've always particularly enjoyed things that have more immersive universes and think different things going on within them. When coming to review this, I obviously don't want to give too much of the plot away because especially in recent times, I think plot has become quite important to the Marvel films. Uh, I mean, particularly with Avengers, Infinity War and Endgame, where they don't want to give too much of it away. So even in the trailers, we'll get snippets of action sequences. We'll get a kind of feel for characters, but we're not getting so much of the plots anymore. And definitely with the last few Marvel films, we've seen our expectations subverted just a little bit. So I'm pretty sure with this review, I'm not going to put anyone off seeing the film, and I'm not going to really entice anyone who's already decided that they're not going to see it. If you haven't started watching MCU films by this point, I don't think you're going to start now. However, I might be wrong. 
Spider-Man Far From Home is the follow-up to Spider-Man Homecoming, which came out a few years ago, and sees the return of director John Watts. It is the fifth outing for Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man. That includes Captain America Civil War, where he was first brought into the MCU, Spider-Man Homecoming, Avengers Infinity War, Endgame, and now Far From Home. And sees the return of Zendaya as MJ, Jacob Batalon as Ned, and Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. Now, this film also features a return of Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury, Happy Hogan, played by John Favreau, and Maria Hill, played by Kobe Smulders. And it's the second recent film that we've seen Nick Fury play a significant part in after last year's Captain Marvel. Although it's a bit of a shame that Nick Fury got very little exposure in the most recent Avengers films, it's quite nice to see that the character's coming back and having more significant roles in some of the other MCU films. I should warn you that although I will not spoil Far From Home, this review will contain spoilers of Avengers Endgame if you have not already seen it. And if you haven't already seen it, what have you been doing? So this film has been touted by some in the media as the first film of Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but executive producer Kevin Feige actually stated that this was kind of seen more as the epilogue of Phase 3. Now, nothing in Phase 4 has officially been confirmed in terms of release dates as of yet. I assume that we're going to get a Marvel Studios announcement where they'll basically have a big event and announce all the films of Phase 4, their release dates, who's going to be starring in them, directors, etc. We've already got some indications, what with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which will see the return of James Gunn directing, uh, a Black Widow movie, and also the touted returns of Doctor Strange and Black Panther, among others. But this film is not really phase four. It does see itself really kind of wrapping up phase three a little bit. And I I wonder if that's perhaps the involvement of Sony as a production company. The Spider-Man films are the only joint productions that uh, Marvel Studios has done. The reason for that being that Sony had the rights to Spider-Man and all the associated characters. But as was leaked shortly before the release of Captain America Civil War, Sony had reached an agreement with Marvel Studios in which they would still produce Spider-Man films, but that they would co-produce and the Spider-Man character could be used in other MCU movies. In the film, Peter Parker and his friends take a European trip with their classmates. However, Peter Parker's much-needed vacation starts to go awry when he's cornered by Nick Fury, who claims to have an important mission for him, nothing short of saving the world, so fairly average day for any Avenger. It's interesting at the beginning of the film, because this is our first insight of seeing the world recovering from the events of Infinity War and Endgame, and specifically by that I'm referring to the snap, in which Thanos wiped out half of all life in the universe and the events of Avengers Endgame, which happened five years later, culminating in the Avengers being able to return all of those individuals who had been snapped, but of course, five years later. Now we're left with a world where half the population has not aged over the last five years. They're referring to it now as the blip. Those affected by the snap, of course, include Peter Parker, who was dusted at the end of Avengers Infinity War, but we also now know it included his closest friends, including MJ and Ned, also Aunt May, and really most of the characters who played uh, an important role in Homecoming who've now returned. However, their class also features those who were kids five years ago who are now an equivalent age. The exposition of this is given in a school TV news piece at the beginning of the film. 
in which one of the newscasters laments that his younger brother is now older than him. And this was an interesting thing because I really wonder, are, are these things actually real in American high schools? Because this seems to come up a lot in movies and TV. That there's some kind of newscast presented over the schools in the morning by a couple of students uh, as a kind of pretend news station. I don't know if this is something that's quite ubiquitous in American high schools now. Perhaps someone could possibly fill me in on that. One other big thing that's happened in the MCU since the events of Endgame is of course that Tony Stark sacrificed himself to take down Thanos. And of course now there's murals and tributes and documentaries to him everywhere, while Peter Parker is still anonymous and kind of trying to deal with the mantle that's potentially been passed to him by Tony Stark as he's seen as kind of a successor. At the beginning of the film, Spider-Man's a bit of a New York celebrity, signing autographs, etc., but no one knows who he is still, except, of course, for those closest to him. So, as mentioned, most of this film takes place in various locations in Europe during a school trip that Peter takes with his class. Now, Nick Fury tries to contact Peter Parker before he takes the trip, but Peter kind of dodges his calls. However, when Nick Fury shows up in his hotel room in Vienna with a tranquilizer gun and knocks out Ned, he's left with little choice but to follow the former S.H.I.E.L.D. director and find out what this all-important mission is all about. It's then that we meet Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterio, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. He's a character who some of you may be familiar from the comics, I've got to admit, although I'm a massive fan of the films, I'm actually not that familiar with the comic books. However, Beck claims to be from an alternate Earth that was destroyed by mysterious beings known as the Elementals, who are now popping up all over our hero's Earth and who Beck is here to help defeat. While Peter Parker initially refuses to assist Nick Fury and Quentin Beck in their mission, he is however roped in further when Nick Fury takes over the school trip's itinerary and redirects them to the cities where the Elementals are due to appear. However, all may not be as it seems. A big part of this film, as mentioned, is Peter Parker taking over Tony Stark's legacy. It's interesting because this, of course, has been kind of hinted basically since uh, Spider-Man first came onto the scene. He's been discovered by Tony Stark. His kit all came from Tony Stark. He's sort of seen as this protege. And it was a large element when Peter Parker was dusted at the end of Avengers Infinity War that that had a massive effect on Tony Stark. And what we see happen here is that Tony Stark has left his sunglasses to Peter Parker. Now that may sound fairly innocuous, but his sunglasses contain access to Edith. Now, Edith was Tony Stark's personal AI that replaced Jarvis after Avengers Age of Ultron when Jarvis was merged with the Infinity Stone to create the character of Vision. Immediately after switching on Edith, Peter Parker has immediate access to everybody's mobile phones and any kind of device, the entire internet, everyone's backgrounds, everyone's governmental records, um, which really strikes me as a bit of a massive GDPR breach, if nothing else. Then immediately afterwards, Peter Parker accidentally calls a lethal drone strike on his classmate, uh, somebody who's a bit of a rival for MJ's affections. This element of the film made me a little bit uneasy, and I think it went a tad too far with Tony Stark's powers. It seems a little bit weird that Tony could just call drone strikes on anyone anywhere, and I felt that this kind of conflicted a tad with the character. Of course, we know that Tony Stark's got access to everything, and we know that his technological genius and his inventiveness was the kind of crux of his power. However, if we go back to Captain America Civil War, 
Tony Stark was the one who campaigned to make sure that superheroes' powers were kept in check and they were all kind of logged under these so-called Sokovia Accords. So it's a little bit, I felt, a double standard that Tony Stark, who was campaigning to, to keep Cap and keep uh, Winter Soldier all under, uh, under government wraps, considered it okay for him to be able to immediately call a drone strike on uh, anyone who pissed him off just by uh, tapping his sunglasses. So I felt that was a little bit overkill and a little bit too much. I don't think that Edith should have carried quite that much easy power. However, it actually becomes a very, very big part of the plot. And Edith is absolutely pivotal. It's not just a kind of sideline on the on the plot to give Spider-Man some additional powers. Edith is basically the keys to the Stark Kingdom and it's everything to play for. It's essentially this all-powerful thing in a pair of sunglasses, which again... I don't know, sunglasses they seem like something you can easily lose, and I'm pretty sure Peter Parker drops them two or three times in the film. A really big part of the plot of this film revolves around current tech, and it's actually quite poignant as we're really dealing with also, our perceptions of reality. Questions. It's not uh, just simply what, a case of can we trust people's motivations, motivations, but also can we trust what we see? Can the characters trust what they see? Is what's being put out into the world, in the media, actually trustworthy and accurate, or are people being manipulated? And I guess it kind of works quite well in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as mentioned, that now uh, we have this reality where crazy things going on, uh, alien invasions, uh, people disappearing, superheroes, villains, etc. is all kind of the norm and all accepted. So in that universe, what things can you do uh, that people will just kind of lap up as reality rather than um, thinking are completely outlandish or questioning what it is that they're being exposed to? And it brings in a lot of elements of, uh, as I mentioned, technology as well in this potential era of deep fakes where we may not only have to question uh, who's telling us what, but actually what we're seeing. This kind of ties in very well with Spider-Man Far From Home and a lot of the themes involved here. One thing I find interesting is in these Spider-Man films, I'm not left comparing them at all to the uh, previous iterations. And by previous iterations, I really am referring to Sam Raimi's trilogy of films with Tobey Maguire. I'll be honest, I didn't actually bother seeing the ones with Andrew Garfield as I didn't really think it was necessary to reboot the character after those films and wasn't really um, interested in them at all. And as uh, I think was kind of later realised, it was really more to do with Sony's necessity to release another Spider-Man film or else lose the rights to the characters uh, and have those revert back to Marvel Studios. So kind of films out of um, a business necessity rather than out of any kind of artistic integrity. Um, but I don't really see these films as, as being in any way related to those. Those were far smaller, uh, had far more to do with just the main character of Spider-Man and, and the things that he was encountering and the, and the villains that he was up against. But uh, that felt more like it was happening in this world, whereas uh, obviously this Spider-Man iteration is completely different. He exists in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Superheroes are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And he's just another superhero rather than the only superhero. He's kind of playing catch-up. He's, he's not as powerful as many of the others. He's not as old. He's not as wise. And he's the new kid in town looking up to a bunch of superheroes. Also, I really do like Tom Holland in the role. I think that he kind of brings far more of the childlike aspect or teen aspect to the character of Spider-Man than either Tobey Maguire or Andrew Garfield did. And I think that makes sense. I think he seems definitely far younger. There's a lot more about the character that kind of seems 
like he is actually a teenager. There's a good amount of humour in the films. It, it may be a little too comic even at, at points, but that definitely seems to be where the MCU has kind of found its strengths in bringing in those comic elements, and it's definitely worked in many of the actual best films in the series, such as Thor Ragnarok and the Guardians of the Galaxy films. This is definitely another Marvel Cinematic Universe film where our expectations in terms of the plot, in terms of the antagonists within the plot, have been kept fairly under wraps uh, and the trailers haven't revealed too much of the overall plot uh, other than that there will be action, there are things to fight and uh, our heroes will be at the centre of it. But I I wonder if that's perhaps been the result of a a little bit of criticism that might have been levelled on the film's where there was an expectation of things becoming a little bit predictable in terms of uh, who the antagonists are, the kind of the general kind of story arc that they'll go through, and to actually keep us guessing a little bit more in, in terms of the actual plot of the films. And I think this one does that nicely, which is why I don't want to discuss too much of the plot and I don't want to spoil any of the elements to it, as I think that will definitely take away from uh, the enjoyment of the film. There's a really great introduction to Mysterio. Really enjoy Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in this. And got to say, honestly, I I don't know how he does it, but the guy just seems to be getting more and more handsome with age. Um, And crikey, what a beard, what a beard. But no, it's a really good performance. And I I like how Spider-Man trying to kind of fill him in in the the father figure, uh, where unlike the other Spider-Man iterations, particularly Sam Raimi's films, where um, obviously uh, his uncle passing away is a, a massive element to his story. Spider-Man's actual parents um, and Spider-Man's father, Spider-Man's uncle, are never really explored in this iteration of Spider-Man. And so actually the father figure has come from Tony Stark. But the relationship there and the loss is completely different as sort of Tony Stark sacrificed himself rather than Spider-Man feeling that uh, he allowed Tony Stark to die, which makes it quite a different dynamic and the the grief element to it is more about being left with the throne and how to how to step into the shoes of Tony Stark. So the loss of Tony Stark is a a very large element in the film uh, and gives a lot of the motivation for the character. It gives a lot of motivation for Peter Parker. But in addition to loss, there's also a large theme of this is growing up, accepting your responsibilities, not shirking them, and sort of learning to deal with how we can live up to responsibilities. It's a totally new Peter Parker. The character's grown quite a lot, and I think giving him this kind of excursion to Europe kind of works quite well. He's then sort of taken out of his element, definitely doesn't want to be Spider-Man for the duration of this film, but is forced to become the hero again. And I'm not really sure if this incarnation of Spider-Man is ever really going to get to go back to being the uh, friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man, because it just seems the universe isn't going to allow that. If the superhero only exists saving people in New York, then he's going to seem a bit out of his depth when we compare him to all the other superheroes who are routinely saving the world, the universe, uh, half of all life in existence, etc. It's going to feel a bit like kind of small fish, I think. So I don't see this Spider-Man iteration sort of going back into that. I think he's come in really too late in the game for that. And now there's far more at stake in the whole universe. And so Peter Parker's going to have to step up to that I think in this and in future films as well and it's interesting that we haven't seen any of the conventional villains that we associate with Spider-Man from the comic book series so no Dr. Octopus no Harry Osborn no Venom no any of these um, quite popular uh, antagonists which I wonder if that's partly an artistic decision to keep Spider-Man in uh, new realms and not kind of repeating things that happened in previous films even if those films are not part of the same continuity 
But I also wonder if a lot of that has to do with Sony wanting to keep those characters for itself. So, as I mentioned, Sony has entered into uh, allow Spider-Man to feature in other MCU films and co-produce the standalone Spider-Man films with Marvel Studios. But other characters such as Venom, which was obviously featured in the movie recently and apparently will have a sequel starring Tom Hardy. That has nothing to do with Marvel Studios. It's a completely different universe. And there have been talks that Sony wanted to expand the continuity of its Marvel characters universe, which honestly seems a little bit hackneyed. And I just don't know if they're going to really have enough characters to pull that off. But I wonder if not featuring any of the more prominent characters from the Spider-Man comics is because they want to hold them back for potential new films within their own Sony MCU or whatever it's going to be called. Spider-Verse? Maybe Spider-Verse minus Spider-Man. So yeah, this film is thoroughly entertaining as expected and I really do like the way that it kind of plays with your uh, expectations as to what's going on and I think that's a new kind of tack taken by a lot of the uh, MCU films and I think it's working quite well. I think it's good that we're not just repeating the same kind of uh, origin stories and the same kind of hero taken down a few pegs by a bad guy has to kind of muscle themselves back up again and take down the villain for a final showdown. I'm, I'm glad that we're changing that up a bit. As I said, if you are an MCU fan, you're definitely going to go and see this film and I don't think you'll be disappointed. I don't think it ranks among the absolute best films that the MCU has pushed out so far. I didn't perhaps enjoy it quite as much as Spider-Man Homecoming, but it's, it's, it's pretty much on a par. Definitely not a significant drop in quality. And it really does leave us wondering where the MCU is going to go from here and where the Spider-Man character is going to go from here. I know that uh, Marvel Studios have talked about the next phase of films featuring a number that really have absolutely nothing to do with Earth and are kind of all set out in space, similarly to Guardians of the Galaxy, so we might expect more films like that. They're also producing a number of short TV series for the uh, forthcoming Disney streaming platform, so fantastic, another subscription that we all have to pay for, huzzah. But not giving us a kind of clear map so far as to what's going to happen in Phase 4, this film leaves us wanting more and not knowing exactly where we're going, I think, for probably the first time in the existence of the MCU. I will say that there are a couple of post-credit scenes for any of those who were worrying after Endgame that this might be a trend of not having post-credit scenes. I don't want to spoil them again and, and mentioning anything about them will definitely spoil them for you uh, in terms of the plot as well as the surprises. But I will say they are cameo heavy and I definitely believe that fans will really enjoy the first post credit sequence. Trailers this week. I'm afraid there's actually only been a couple of new ones spotted in the cinema. First up is Only You, a directorial debut from Harry Wootliff. Uh, this seems to be a romantic film centering on two characters and seems to be a serendipitous meeting followed by a, a, an impassioned relationship. I mean, it's quite a nicely edited trailer. It really doesn't give away much of the film beyond the fact that there is a relationship and we sort of see how this develops. It's not even quite clear what maybe the, uh, the troubles or the problems that our protagonists are going to face during the course of this film are but it definitely looks like it might be interesting it stars josh o'connor and spanish actress lea costa who you might remember from her eponymous role in the one-shot film victoria which was released a few years ago which i would highly recommend as an incredibly uh, tense thriller and a massive technical achievement managing to shoot an entire action heist film in one continuous take Anyway, this trailer for Only You, it, as I said, it doesn't reveal much. There's a love story between the two main characters and we kind of get the sense that there's going to be a journey through this. 
Yeah, it looks potentially interesting. Reviews seem to be quite positive. It's one that Curzon is pushing, as I believe it's one that Curzon Artificial Eye has produced. So wait and see on that. But yes, definitely looks like one to catch. Uh, the other new trailer, or new to the cinema anyway, is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I'm super excited about. The trailer is all things Quentin Tarantino. Uh, I actually saw this some time ago on um, IMDb or YouTube or wherever, but uh, it's good to see it in the cinema. It's a good trailer. It's quite a long trailer. It gives a huge sense of the time, the location in Hollywood in the late 60s, the kind of the characters we're seeing, including Leonardo DiCaprio as star Rick Dalton and Brad Pitt as his stunt double Cliff Booth. We also see Margot Robbie starring as Sharon Tate. And uh, there seems to be a, a wealth of additional cast members in here as Kurt Russell, Al Pacino, Luke Perry in what I believe must be one of his last films, uh, Emil Hirsch, uh, Damien Lewis, although I'm not sure he was in the trailer. But yeah, a, a really big cast. And it's got a great sense of, as I said, the location and the time, a real kind of cutie style to it, which is great. But also the other nice thing about the trailer is it really, do, I, I'm not getting much of a sense of the actual overall plot of the film. It just seems to be sort of various things happening, uh, but I'm not quite sure where the story's going, except to say that Charles Manson does seem to feature within the trailer. So I guess it's unlikely that that's going to end well, but uh, not entirely sure what to what capacity he features within that and whether that's going to be more a, a side note or if that's kind of the... Uh, the crux of the story of the film. Uh, it has recently been revealed that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will carry an 18 certificate in the UK, which is probably not surprising. Although I would say again that the trailer did not necessarily appear as though it would feature tons of the expected kind of bad language and violence that we uh, we come to know and love from QT. But I guess uh, that will all be in the actual film itself. And the running time is apparently going to be 161 minutes. I had heard people criticise Quentin Tarantino on his inability to properly edit his films. In many ways, I think I'm part of the school of thought that says a good film can never be too long and a bad film can never be too short. Thanks very much for listening. I've been Edward James Beasley. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I hope you're going to check out the films that I saw. I would definitely recommend them both. No promises on exactly what's going to be in next week's podcast, but I think it's likely that Toy Story 4 will finally feature uh, and hopefully Jim Jarmusch's new zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die and possibly one other. But either way, I shall be back next weekend with a new episode. Thanks very much for listening and have a good one. <laughs>